Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. How many of you here today remember getting in trouble as a kid at some point? I'm glad to see a lot of hands. I was afraid that uh, maybe I would have to be, you know, saying, Lord, thanks for this perfect congregation, and I'm going to ruin it or something. Uh, I managed to get myself into trouble quite a few times when I was a kid. My parents were generally patient, but if I did something that was particularly or spectacularly dumb... My mom or dad might become exasperated, and I would then hear that, that wonderful question that children everywhere have become familiar with. What in the world is wrong with you? Ever been asked that question? Sometimes we ask that uh, question of ourselves too, don't we? When we realize that we've done something that, uh, that uh, we regret or that will cause us more grief or more work or headache, of some kind, we go, what is wrong with me? What in the world was I thinking? Now, we ask, we ask these questions most often out of our frustration. But you know, on the whole, these are not bad questions. What in the world is wrong with you? What in the world is wrong with me? See, the scriptures are abundantly clear that there is something wrong with all of us. And it's much more serious than we might think. I spend a fair amount of time reading. And in the past year and a half or so, I've been reading some classic pieces of literature, some of which convey uh, theological truth and speak deeply to human experience. Some of what I've read has been valuable, offering wisdom and insight into life and human nature and the way things are. And frankly, some of what I've been reading has been pretty out there. It uh, hasn't made a lot of sense to me. I've been reading nursery rhymes. Hey, when you have an almost two-year-old, rhymes are a must. Malachi hasn't gone in for systematic theology, so we're sticking with the nursery rhymes for now. One of my favorite nursery rhymes tells the sad story of an egg. You know the one. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. There's deep theological truth in this simple nursery rhyme. A well-known humanist has said, Whatever man can undo, man can do. In other words, we humans can solve any problem we make. A Christian critic has responded by saying, I'd like to break an egg over his head and say, now you do what I have undone. Like Humpty Dumpty, all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put that delicate shell back together again. That's the message of the word this morning. Spiritually, we cannot do what was undone in the Garden of Eden so long ago. Thanks to Adam and Eve, we have a problem with our human nature that only God can fix. 
The Bible calls this problem sin. You know the story found in the early chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1 records the creation of the human race. In verse 26, God says, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. And verse 27 says, So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28 says, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And in verse 31, we read that God examined his creation and pronounced it very good. Humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation, his crowning achievement, so to speak. He blessed them and he gave them responsibility with only one recorded command limiting their freedom. And that's found in chapter 2. In chapter 2, after God had placed the man in the Garden of Eden and before he created woman, he gave the man this instruction. You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. And then God created the woman, saying, It is not good for the man to be alone. And chapter 2 ends by saying, The man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. You see, they were created for God and for one another, for unity and fellowship and love. They were created to delight in each other and in the, in the triune God. They were not ashamed because they were living in close fellowship with God and and fulfilling their God-ordained purpose. And it was very good. Enter the serpent in chapter 3. The serpent was more crafty or cunning than the other wild animals the Lord God had made. The serpent tempted Eve with a couple of half-truths designed to cause Eve to doubt God's goodness. Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? God hadn't said that at all. Of all the trees in the garden, he only restricted one. Satan exaggerated God's prohibition. He then goes on to say, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here the serpent implies that he knows God better than the woman does. He claims to know what God knows and insinuates that God's motives are selfish to keep the man and the woman in the dark, to keep them from realizing their true potential, to rule and control them with threats that really aren't true anyway. The serpent twisted God's words and created significant doubt in Eve's mind. She began to view God as a cruel and oppressive overlord rather than as their provider and good friend. Eve was convinced by Satan's deceptions and determined to have her own way. So she disobeyed God's command intended for her good. Chapter 3, verse 6 says, She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. In the Hebrew, the words are structured in such a way that they, they emphasize the act. And she took of its fruit And she ate, and she gave. Vic Hamilton writes, Such extremely difficult pronunciation forces a merciless concentration on each word. Such a simple, willful act. Such a devastating effect. 
so easy to do, so very difficult to undo. Through this one act of disobedience, Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world and into each of our lives as well. So that our natural tendency is to do exactly what Adam and Eve did. We know God is good and we know he has our best interest at heart, but still we want to challenge the boundaries God has put in place for our protection. We focus on the things we're missing in life or or on our less than ideal circumstances or on the suffering we have to endure. And then we start thinking, I'm really getting a rotten deal from God right now. And pretty soon, God becomes the one thwarting our happiness rather than the one providing us with all the good things that we need and have and, and showering us with tender, loving care. And all too often, we decide, like Adam and Eve, that we know better than God what's good for us. We become discontent with what we have been given or with the way things are. And so we, we throw off God's authority and set ourselves up as our own God's. We do what we want to do. You know the rest of the story. Chapter 3, verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Something holy was lost in the garden that day. In a way, Adam and Eve got what they wanted. Their eyes were indeed opened, but it was not at all like what they expected. They realized they were naked and they were ashamed. They heard God in the garden. And instead of running to meet him with joy, instead of embracing him and enjoying his fellowship and his company, they hid from him. And what followed was shame and guilt and fear and blame. Adam blamed Eve for giving him the fruit, and he blamed God for giving him Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. (coughs) Excuse me. On that day, Adam and Eve alienated themselves from God and from each other. They forfeited their garden paradise, and they were thrust into a world of pain and sorrow hard work and sweat, and ultimately, death. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. A very high price to pay for the freedom to eat from one forbidden tree out of all the trees that God had provided in the garden. You see, sin never lives up to its promises. Sin promises freedom, pleasure, happiness, control, self-fulfillment, greater intimacy and awareness. Sin delivers bondage, heartache, sorrow, slavery, emptiness, and alienation. Ongoing sin sears the conscience and ultimately hardens our hearts toward God. Someone has said, sin always takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. The consequences of sin are deadly serious. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, we are all marred and scarred by sin. Romans 5 says, The result of one trespass was condemnation for all, and through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. 
Because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, we've each been born into a world of sin, and we've each been born with a sinful nature. We're born with a tendency towards selfishness and self-centeredness, toward rebellion against authority and rules. We're born with a nature that whispers to us, go ahead and sin. Don't resist temptation, indulge in it. And we've all, each and every one of us, experienced on some level the shame, guilt, and fear that comes with sin. We know what it's like to be alienated from God and one another. Sin is not something to be trifled with. But the good news, both for Adam and Eve and for us, is this. God is bigger than any sin. God's grace is bigger than any sin. Though Adam and Eve hid from God, God went looking for them. Genesis 3.9 says, The Lord God called to the man, Where are you? God took the initiative to search for Adam and Eve, not so he could kill them or punish them, but so that he could redeem them, reclaim them, and restore them to right relationship with himself. Yes, punishment was involved, but God's punishments are always redemptive in nature. Isaiah 26.9 says, When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. God's punishment is designed to turn people back to him. God went looking for Adam and Eve. And the whole rest of the Bible is an outworking of this theme, God is searching for those who are lost. We see this in the covenants God made with Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see it in the coming of the prophets, calling Israel back to God. And we see it in the coming of the person of Jesus. That's what the cross is all about. The cross of Christ bears witness through the ages that God is constantly seeking to redeem and restore lost, broken, and hurting people. Luke 19.10 states it clearly. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Though God punished Adam and Eve for their sin... And it was a serious punishment. His grace still shines through. God graciously and compassionately clothed Adam and Eve with coverings more sufficient than fig leaves. In doing so, he acknowledged their shame without condemning them, and he showed them that he would still be their provider. And though Adam and Eve wouldn't have recognized it, Genesis 3.15 contains a promise, a prophetic promise of deliverance from sin. The offspring of the woman would eventually crush the serpent's head, a promise fulfilled in Christ's victory over Satan. Indeed, Romans 5 makes it clear that the life-giving power of Christ is more than sufficient to overcome the sin and death that entered the world through Adam. And the life-giving power of Christ is a gift. Romans 5.15 says, For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did, did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? If I had to title this Romans passage, I would title it, How Much More Grace? One pastor put it this way. He said, If sin is huge, 
then grace is huger. If sin is powerful, grace is more powerful. If alienation runs deep, grace runs deeper. If hate is strong, grace is stronger. I can't prove this, but time and time again, I have seen it to be true that there is much more grace in God than there is sin in us. Adam and Eve may have given us bondage to sin and death, but God in Christ has given us freedom from sin and victory over death. He's given us the power to live pure, holy, and godly lives. As the song goes, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the captive free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. So hear the good news this morning. Though we on our own are powerless to do anything about our sinful natures, in Christ there is hope for even the worst of sinners. In Christ there is hope for you and for me. James S. Stewart tells a story about Dr. John Duncan, professor at Edinburgh University in Scotland. Duncan was sitting one day at a Highland communion, and he felt so unworthy that when the bread and the wine were passed around, he let them pass. But as he sat there feeling miserable, he looked up and saw a girl who, when the elements reached her, broke down crying and also let them pass. And seeing this, Dr. Duncan suddenly remembered the truth that he had been forgetting. And in a hoarse whisper that carried across the church, he said to the crying girl, Take it, lassie. It's meant for sinners. And he himself received communion that day. In just a few moments, we're going to receive communion together. As we do, please hold on to that truth. It's meant for sinners. Receiving the bread and the cup serves as a vivid reminder to us. This means I'm forgiven. Adam and Eve introduced sin in the world when they took and ate the fruit in the garden. Thousands of years later, Christ invited his disciples to take and eat and receive the cure. Because you see, only Christ can do what was undone in the Garden of Eden so long ago. And that is truly good news for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, remind us this morning of the depth of our fallenness, the depth of our sin, And yet also, remind us and keep ever before us the depth of your amazing grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The scriptures tell us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, and he took the bread, and he gave thanks to the Father, and he broke it, 
He gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup and he gave thanks to the father and he gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Father, on the day that you raised Jesus from the dead, he was recognized by his disciples in the breaking of the bread. And in the power of your Holy Spirit, your church has continued in the breaking of bread and in the sharing of the cup. And so in remembrance of all of your mighty acts in Christ Jesus, we ask you to accept this our offering of praise and thanksgiving which we offer in union with Christ's sacrifice for us as a living and holy surrender of ourselves. We pray that you would send the power of your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts, that in the breaking of this bread and the drinking of this cup, we may know the presence of the living Christ, be renewed as his body, and grow into his likeness. And we will give you thanks. Amen.